Welcome back to Tech Enabled, an AI podcast on technology, public policy, and economic opportunity. I'm your host, John Bailey. One of the most significant changes policymakers faced with the coronavirus was estimating where their communities were in the context of the transmission curve. Most of the models looked backwards, not ahead. It's like knowing where a hurricane had been, but not having a forecast of where it was going. Carnegie Mellon University researchers are trying to change that. The Delphi Group at CMU focuses on developing the capability of epidemiological forecasting. They've deployed interactive maps that display real-time information on symptoms, doctor visits, medical tests, and even browser searches related to COVID-19 in the United States, including estimated disease activity at the county level. One of the unique aspects of the COVID casting tools they've developed is the use of survey data from Facebook and searches from Google. This anonymized data can help provide a leading indicator that may predict a surge of cases within a local geography. We are joined this week by Ryan Tipshirani, Associate Professor at the Department of Statistics and Machine Learning at Carnegie Mellon University to discuss their COVID casting research and the ways it can help state and local leaders manage their response. Ryan, thanks for being with us today. Just introduce the Carnegie Mellon Delphi Research Group. What is it? What is it that you do? Sure. So we started this in 2012. Roni Rosenfeld, who's a colleague of mine in machine learning, and and myself, we started it eight years ago, I guess. And the broad goal behind the group was to make epidemiological forecasting, which is the forecasting of epidemics. This is the moonshot goal, was to make that as kind of trusted and as embedded in people's daily lives as weather forecasting is today. So people check their phones, they see tomorrow it's going to rain, the whole next week is going to be sunny, etc. The moonshot goal is to be able to deal with epidemics. This will be a calm week for the flu where you live, but it's going to be a rough week for Chicago next week. So if you're planning to visit Chicago, especially if you have an underlying health condition or if you're elderly, maybe you should hold off, that kind of thing. So that is the kind of moonshot goal of this research group. The focus, as I kind of already tipped my hand, was was and has been for the last eight years on seasonal influenza in the United States. So forecasting seasonal flu. That's great. And I know CDC gave you this amazing designation as one of only two national centers of excellence in influenza forecasting. What does that designation mean? What does that mean coming from the CDC? Yeah, thanks. We were very happy to receive that. So we actually have been working with the CDC since 2012, since we started. And the background there is that in 2012, they started a national, you can call it competition, you can call it a collaboration, which is they basically tried to encourage academics and also people who, are, who work in industry to start forecasting seasonal influenza. And they had a small amount of money associated with a prize, basically, for who would produce the best forecast that first year. And we've been, ever since that first year, we've been working with this, this kind of community surrounding the CDC on defining the flu forecasting problem, but also improving the science. So you can imagine it's, it's even hard to define what it means to produce good forecasts, right? A single year, it's hard to look back and to say who had the most accurate forecast. There's 50 states, of course, but those states aren't exactly experiencing independent epidemics. It's all very kind of correlated and complicated. So. There's a lot of work that has to go into what does it even mean to set up a forecasting, let's say, competition or evaluation system that's numerically credible. So we've been working on on that with them since 2012, and we've also been participating in kind of pushing the the bleeding edge of the science forward each year. We've been fortunate enough to do well in these competitions. I think if my memory serves me right, we've had the most accurate forecasts for every year except for the last one, and then. We were extremely happy to hear that the CDC was 
looking at this food forecasting kind of endeavor as an important enough problem to elevate to the level of a center of excellence. So this was the next step in some sense, which it went from being in a very important academic exercise to one in which we would be more kind of regularly and closely plugged into the CDC's week to week and to try to do things that would be useful for them. So if there were things that were pressing matters they wanted us to weigh in on, then we would be there. If there were kind of other higher level guidance, like let's help design another competition for an emerging virus, you know, whether it's in the US or otherwise, we would be there to help with that. But think about what are the long-term ways that we can make food forecasting really useful and kind of sketch out a program to work towards that. Part of this, one small part, I would say maybe one of kind of five parts that were defined as part of the center was thinking about pandemics. And we were awarded this in September of last year. And at that point, nobody was thinking about pandemics. And to our surprise, of course, our relationship with the CDC and our entire kind of focus completely changed in January, February of this year. Yeah, that's amazing. Because I mean, it sounds like you had these years of fine tuning some of your science and your models for the influenza virus. COVID-19 hits and the CDC comes to you. And I know you now have this thing called COVIDcast. How did you translate all your lessons learned and your models from influenza? And how did you apply this to COVID? And what is COVIDcast? Yeah, it's a good question. So the short answer is that, and maybe this is not surprising, is that there's only so much you can transfer from flu to COVID. So the way that we were thinking about the flu, which is the way that a lot of the people who are in the modeling community have been thinking about it, is to rely on the rich history of data we have for the flu and the rich availability of different data sources that are, you might call them proxies for the flu, and to build models with lots of available historical data. And these models, so in, in epidemiology, there are kind of, if you, you had to cut the world in half, then maybe the, there's a distinction of two different ways of modeling. One is based on what you would call a compartmental model, which models, you know, let's say the most simple one is susceptible, infected, recovered. It models each person in, in let's say, the U.S. as being in one of those three states. Those are three compartments, and it, it describes how, for example, a susceptible individual might get infected and how an infected individual might recover. And that's based on, I would call them epidemiological theories about the way that disease is spread. On the other half are what people in epidemiology would call statistical models. So these are models that aren't based on kind of clear-cut description of compartments and the way that you move between them, and really aren't based on any kind of you know, scientific interpretation of disease transmission, but based on modeling historical trends and propagating them forward in a, in a careful way. And that worked really well with flu. And with COVID, of course, we're kind of starting from scratch in some sense in terms of the history. So it's been extremely challenging for everybody. Still, I mean, having worked with disease forecasting, it's better than nothing. So, you know, we, we certainly have a, a head start in some ways. So with COVIDcast, we decided in, I would say about mid-March, that the most useful thing we could do for public health would be to stop focusing on forecasting, which sounds maybe kind of surprising, but maybe you hear the rest of my answer, it'll hopefully make sense. Stop focusing on forecasting because there are many, many smart, dedicated, well-meaning groups that are working on forecasting currently. And to work on a problem that's kind of, that needs to be solved before you even make forecasts, which is what are the input data to these forecasts? and what is an ecosystem we can build kind of on which forecasts to live, acknowledging the fact that, you know, this is not a sprint. This forecasting problem is probably going to be of interest and of concern for a while because the pandemic is going to be of concern for a while. So 
just to give you some kind of specific context, looking at the number of people in any given county or even in a kind of larger region that have a positive confirmation of COVID from a test is not a great indicator of current COVID activity, especially it wasn't, you know, in the last couple of months, like in March or April, because that number is so complicated by the capacity, how many tests were available there, and policy. What was the policy that, let's say, the county had in place that allowed people to get tested? Is the testing a little bit of a lagging indicator too, just given the incubation period that in some cases, when someone goes to get a test, it's always been 14 days. So is it that the data is not great at feeding models because it's already 14 days potentially late? Yeah, it's a great point. So to take that point and to kind of drive it further, we talk about something called a pyramid of severity often. So at the very top of the severity pyramid is death. Below that might be critical hospitalizations, so people who are in ICU beds on ventilators. Below that is hospitalizations. Below that, probably a positive test. Below that would be symptoms. And so being symptomatic in the community, having COVID symptoms but has not gone and received a positive, gotten tested at all, let alone received a positive test. So suppose we're trying to be most useful as possible to public health officials. Our opinion, at least, is that hospitalization forecasts if we had to just do one thing, would probably be the thing that would be most useful. Short-term hospitalization forecasts, informing local public health officials what they need to prepare for, let's say in the next four weeks. To forecast hospitalizations, you need to understand an earlier part of the picture, and that would be moving down the severity pyramid. And of course, once you have hospitalization forecasts, you could move up the severity pyramid, and you could then use those to forecast ICU beds and those mm-hmm. to forecast deaths, right? So starting with hospitalization forecasting as your goal, we were trying to think, what are the data sources that we could create that would enable this forecasting problem to be more tractable? And these had to be things that we thought we could sustain for a while, and they couldn't be kind of like one-time data collection efforts. So COVID cast, I mean, the word cast is there for a reason, which is that we eventually plan to make this kind of fully integrated into forecasts. But where it is now is it's somewhere in between. We created a bunch of data streams, and we're figuring out how to plug them into forecasts. So COVIDcast, when it launched, had five new data streams. There were supposed to be all early indicators of COVID burden, and they had a different lead time. So some of them had an earlier lead time, but would have been more, maybe more noisy. Some of them would have had less of a lead time, but hopefully been out a bit less noisy. There's a trade-off there. What are the five pieces of data? And then I want to move into what makes part of your model so interesting is your partnership with Google and Facebook, which... It's just really unusual, and I want to dive into a little bit more about what that is. But first of all, like, what are the five pieces of data that go into your sure? Work yeah. Right so there's currently we have data on doctors' visits. So this is data that comes from essentially medical claims. So this is describing outpatient visits in which the patient had some kind of profile that was consistent with COVID. So it's mm-hmm. not a positive test. It's just showing up at the doctor's office with symptoms like fever, cough, sore throat, and then maybe some of the more rare symptoms as well. But this was somebody who actually was sick enough that they went to go see a doctor. And this is the fraction of doctor visits that's in a given day in a given county that were related to COVID-like symptoms or expressed COVID-like symptoms. So there's also symptom surveys, which Google and Facebook are two biggest symptom surveys we're running. We're actually running several others. There's currently Facebook, Google, YouTube, one through Amazon, and there's actually one through Google's COVID microsite. So they have, you know, they have a microsite that sometimes right. you link mm-hmm. from the front page. So there's a total of five surveys we're running, but the 
two biggest by far in terms of volume are through Google surveys team and through Facebook, which are the ones that you know about. And what do you ask um, in the surveys? What kind of questions are asked? They're very, very different, actually, which makes them useful. And it makes them useful in combination because they all, they all ask different things. So the Facebook survey is very, very detailed. It starts off with questions that are just, are you experiencing any of the following symptoms, which are the kind of primary symptoms associated with a COVID-like illness? So fever, cough, sore throat, difficulty breathing. It asks them how many people in their household are experiencing those symptoms, how many people are, are in their household total, and what zip code they live in. That's the first part. And the rest of the survey was actually co-written by a bunch of public health researchers outside of CMU. And mm -hmm. we kind of made one, we passed over it to try to make it, you know, as fluid and least repetitive as possible. The rest of the survey dives into more details about symptoms, more demographic details. So that's the Facebook survey. It's, it's pretty long compared to the other ones. The one we're running to Google surveys is very different. It's just one question long. And the way that a user will encounter it at Facebook and it will encounter it through Google survey platform are very different as well. So Facebook will randomly show a user some recruitment text that will say, this is something that, you know, Delphi, Carnegie Mellon Delphi Research Group is doing. You can help track where the pandemic is heading. Even if you're healthy, please take the survey, et cetera, et cetera. And it brings them over to an external site, which is a symptom survey that we set up on the CMU side. Google actually embeds one question, let's say, into a news article. So you might be reading a news article and maybe paid content. If you want to access the rest of the content, you have to answer a survey question. Mm -hmm. And it's just one question, yes or no, or not sure. And the question is, do you know somebody in your local community with COVID symptoms? And then it's, it spells out the symptoms. So it's not actually a question about the individual. It's a question about whether they know somebody in their community. And this was done actually, to be honest, to satisfy some kind of internal privacy concerns Google had about asking health questions. And it was not initially the question that I, I asked them to run. We changed it from being a question about the person who's taking the survey to a question about their community. So and before I, we started this, I thought the answer was going to be 100% yes. I was going to see everybody across the country knows somebody with a fever, cough, difficulty breathing. How could that not be the case, right? So I was really negative about how useful it would be. To my surprise, that community question is extremely useful. Actually, even more useful in some ways than asking an individual about their symptoms. Why? And that's a great question. I don't really know scientifically why, but my best guess currently is that it's pooling information across a much larger number of people. So it's like asking one person to report on a hundred people around them. It's an immediate boost. It, it of leverages of the network effects of everyone yeah. that someone knows. Yeah. It was in fact so useful that I added it to the Facebook survey about a week into the yeah. Facebook survey. So we, we actually asked that in addition to the other questions in the Facebook survey. And so how many people are filling out these surveys? Is it just a few or are these thousands, no, it's millions? It's a, it's a lot, yeah. There's currently about 600,000 people filling out the Google surveys each day. Wow, each day? Each day. And Facebook is somewhere in between 70 and 100,000. Wow. So you get from this not just daily snapshots, but it lets you get trend data as well. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So let me tell you quickly about one more indicator, actually, that's on our site. And then I, will, I can speak very briefly to how we're thinking about some of these things. So the last indicator is actually an indicator based on people's search trends, which we have access to through Google Trends. So Google Trends is actually a public interface to look up the propensity of various bags of search terms. So for example, you can define a bag of search terms that have to do with things related to COVID, and you could figure out what's the frequency with which people are searching for any of those terms in a given day in a given county. 
actually it's not available at the county level, it's a little bit more, of course, so that like a metropolitan area. And if we think back at the indicators I mentioned, there's actually a fifth one, which I'm not describing, but let's just talk about those four. The search terms might be the earliest indicator of activity, but the noisiest, right? If something's uh, happening sure. in someone's community, we might imagine it's plausible for the, a lot of searches to kind of to happen, but there's a lot of people searching for it, but it's very noisy. Of course, these search behavior might also correlate with people reading something on the news. And mm-hmm. we do indeed do, do find that when there's, let's say, a very big national news story that has to do with COVID, you see like a burst in the in the search terms all over. Or if, if the state goes into lockdown, then there's a very big burst in that state in terms of COVID-related searches. So it's certainly the noisiest. The symptoms probably have the next biggest lead time. But again, it's noisy because you have people self-reporting, right. right? And then the doctor's visits have the least amount of lead time, but are probably the, the least noisy. So the way that we think about using these is not to use any one individual indicator to infer ground truth, but to look at what you said, which is trends. If we see something like, for example, the Facebook survey signal being constant in some county and then jumping up and staying high, then that jump is probably meaningful. Even if I don't believe, let's say that 2% of people in a given county were reporting they had symptoms, even if I don't know whether to trust 2% because this is being self-reported and because people are being drawn to the survey who maybe aren't exactly random samples from the population, if I believe that bias is constant over time, then the changes over time are still going to be meaningful. Uh-huh. Seeing go from 2 to 3% is still going to be meaningful, even if I don't believe 2 and 3 in an absolute sense. That's right. being a reflection of kind of prevalence of symptoms. So we think of the trends over time as being predictors of COVID burden to come. That's amazing. So I, I could see, I mean, it's super clear based on what you're describing, how this is, would be useful for local health officials, for hospitals in terms of anticipating cases and surges. Is this now that you have this heightened state of mayors and governors as they're relaxing social distancing measures, does this data become a data source for them to help guide the relaxation or the reactivation of social distancing? Like how how could a governor or a mayor use this in their, their town? That's a great question. So actually, we've been very happy to learn that other groups are using these indicators. That was the whole point, right? Was to create these data streams for not just us, but for everybody to be able to use. So I'm aware of several other groups who have looked at the kind of temporal pattern of these indicators and looked at when there's been this kind of recent reopening, at least partial reopening, how these have changed. It's certainly, I think, information that could contribute to decisions to tighten back up, right? Especially if you see all four indicators jumping in a way that's very atypical given their kind of historical behavior in in April. As soon as you reopen, that's probably problematic. We are super interested in working with regional stakeholders. So we work with the CDC, but I was mentioning counties throughout. The CDC doesn't really look at the U.S. below the state level. The CDC sees the division of the U.S. into states as being kind of the manageable way that they can think about communication and planning. So we're working with Southwestern Pennsylvania. We're beginning conversations with other states about kind of trying to tailor what we're doing to suit their needs. And I would love to be able to provide tailored forecasts, tailored indicators, et cetera, to you know, any county that is interested, but it's just an issue of manpower. So we're currently butting right up against this idea that you know, we, we're still not a very big group. I would love to ingest other sources of data. This is usually the way the conversation goes. You know, we say California will say, this looks interesting to us. By the way, we have all this other data that's not public. 
that would be useful. We'd like to give it to you, but we'd like you to tailor your forecasts to be a finer resolution and to more suit what we're looking for. So maybe they, they're looking for this particular specification of thing, not just hospitalizations, but maybe like they have a certain way of defining what they're looking for. And that would be fantastic. And we'd love to work on that. But we, you know, for working on the national effort and the Southwestern Pennsylvania effort, unfortunately, the good news is we have a lot of philanthropies that kind of listen in on this podcast. So hopefully today, this will connect yeah. That's interesting, though. Like when California comes to you and they say, we have this other data, like what are some of those other data that they want to marry up? What is the data that would help refine and create that final resolution that you were saying? One very kind of clear answer is is hospitalizations as being reported, COVID hospitalizations as being reported through a state's public health surveillance system. Oh, okay. So the system is very complicated and I'm not an expert in the way the system works, but my attempt at explaining it is that when a hospital sees a COVID patient every day at noon, they will enter into a system all the COVID patients they saw for the last 24 hours, which gets sent to the county. The county will then in some way aggregate that and send that to the state. And so California as a state will be getting reports in each of its counties from how many hospitalizations those counties have seen in the last 24 hours. Now, there's a lot of complications about the way the system works, and there's a lot of systematic errors in the data. So things that are really important to understand and be aware of. And so California will, will only release the total number summed across all counties publicly. They won't release the county by county totals because of the fear that these systematic errors are severe enough that somebody who's not an expert would misinterpret, let's say, a particular county's report. And so they would give us access to finer data in terms of, let's say, geographic resolution than what's being reported publicly. But that would come with the caveat that there's a ton of things to be aware of here, that reporting lags, changes in definitions over time, counties getting overwhelmed, et cetera, et cetera. So it gets very complicated. Makes so much sense. What I love about this is that you have a university, you have public health officials at various levels, but federal, state, and local. You have business with Facebook and Google, and then potentially state government partnerships too. And you're so right. I love the metaphor at the beginning of needing a forecast the way we have hurricane forecasts and be able to sort of predict where things are headed to be able to make planning more reasonable kind of in the future. So thank you so much. Thanks for the time today. And thanks for all you're doing in, during this crisis. I just so appreciate it. So thanks for being with us today. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. 